All right, last week we finished the book of Ezekiel. Uh, finished in five weeks, I believe it was. So that means tonight we start what book? Daniel. Daniel, exactly. What do you think of when you think of the book of Daniel? Holler it out. Lion's Den. Absolutely, that's what we think of. That's why this is the image to help you remember the book of Daniel. You see Daniel sleeping peacefully at the foot of a lion, counting lions instead of counting sheep. So it takes one story from the book of Daniel uh, to help you remember about Daniel's dependency and, and his reliance on the Lord. But the book of Daniel, I'm just telling you, the book of Daniel is about so much more than just that story. If that's all you think of when you think of the book of Daniel, you're missing lots and lots in the book of Daniel. So we're going to go through that. I'm going to remind you that Daniel is the last of the four major prophets. The four major prophets are Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel. And actually, they cover the first five, actually, that covers the first five books going in out of the wisdom literature that we studied. Lamentations is kind of folded in there with Jeremiah because Jeremiah is believed to have written Lamentations. But these are the four major prophets. So Daniel is the last one. Now, Daniel is shorter than than the other major prophets. Daniel is a 12-chapter uh, book. But it's probably going to take us just about as long to go through Daniel as it did Ezekiel. Because uh, there's a lot of really rich stuff in the book of Daniel. So let's talk about Daniel for just a minute. Daniel's life has a lot of similarities to Joseph's life. Can you think of some of the similarities between Joseph and Daniel? I'm sorry? Carried into captivity. Both of them were carried into captivity. Second in charge. They wound up in a position of authority. Dreams. Absolutely. They both had and interpreted dreams. No compromise. Neither of them would compromise. Despite their situation, despite where they were located, neither of them would compromise. You think of anything else? Imprisoned. Say it. Imprisoned. imprisoned. They were both imprisoned. Absolutely. Daniel and there's there's two people in Scripture that you really can't find anything bad spoken of. I mean, they had no major moral failings. That doesn't mean they were perfect, but those two people are Joseph and Daniel. Of those two people in Scripture, you really can't... I mean, Moses, you can find Moses messing up. You can find David... But these two people in Scripture, there's not much said about them. And uh, so they're very similar. Daniel was part of, of Judah's royal family. And so remember, we just went through the exile into Babylon, and we went through that in great depth, but we said there was at least two deportations... There was the first deportation when all of the, the upper class and more of the royalty and everything else were deported into Babylonian exile. And then there was the final deportation when Babylon just wiped out Jerusalem. 
and took the rest of them there. So Daniel went in the first deportation. He was part of the royal family. He was well-educated. He was schooled. And that probably happened about 605 B.C. if you're kind of a numbers person. He had three friends that went into captivity with him. Three friends. You know them by their Babylonian names. But they had Hebrew names. Their Hebrew names were Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. These are their Hebrew names. So Daniel and these three friends, along with a big swatch of other royalty and, and, and higher-ups, went to Babylon in the first deportation. Daniel's captivity lasted through Nebuchadnezzar's reign all the way through the first Persian king that overthrew Babylon, that overthrew Nebuchadnezzar's crew. So he's got a long stretch of time in captivity in Babylon, in the royal courts the whole time, really influencing not just the Gentile kings, if you will, but the future of what was going to happen. So let me give you an outline. We'll just kind of crack this book open a little bit tonight, and then we'll really dig in next week. Simple outline. The first half of the book is about his experiences. It's kind of a broad. There's going to be a few things we look at in the first half that weren't direct experiences with Daniel, but kind of so. And then the last half of the book is Daniel's visions. His visions. So it's a really simple outline. Take the first half. That's about his experiences. It's a little more historical. Second half is a little bit more prophetical and visionary. So, so that's the outline we're going to be working on. So let's start with Daniel's experiences. Daniel's experiences. We're going to break these down into about eight things that happen in these first six chapters. Starts with this. He arrives and is established in Babylon. Now, we said that he came with three friends, and we gave you their Hebrew names. But when they arrive in Babylon, they're given Babylonian names. So, Hananiah, Hananiah I misspelled that, that's a typo. Hananiah becomes Shadrach. Mishael becomes Meshach. That's another typo. My autocorrect got me on those. Didn't recognize the Hebrew. And Azariah is Abednego. And Daniel, we know Daniel by Daniel. That's his Hebrew name. But he was given the name Belteshazzar. We'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, the four of them come into Babylon and let's just drop into the text and, and we'll let the text speak for itself. Daniel chapter 1. Let's just read Daniel chapter 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came into Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hands with some of the vessels of the house of the God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, which would be Babylon. To the house of his God and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. So he basically ransacked Jerusalem. Took all the things that were sacred to them out of the temple and put them in his own pagan temple. Verse 3. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish and good appearance and skillful in wisdom, endowed with knowledge and understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. So the cream of the crop. Nebuchadnezzar says, I want the cream of the crop brought back to the palace. 
Verse 5, And the king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank, and they were to be educated for three years. And at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king, and among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. Okay, let's stop right there for a minute. So what happens is they come in, they ransack Jerusalem, they take the cream of the crop, the nobility, the really wise people, and the really young people. So Daniel and his friends were probably teenagers when they were carried off into Babylon. And he brings them into Babylon. And so he sets them up. And the first thing he does is he sets them up in the palace and they get to eat the king's food and drink the king's wine. And they get special tutoring. They get all of this, and then they're given Babylonian names. Why this special treatment for slaves? I think we should at least ask that question. To assimilate. To assimilate. How so? So to assimilate a group of people, you water down their identity. Yeah. Even to the point of giving them new names. Now, their Hebrew names all had elements in their names that referred to God, referred to Jehovah. Their Babylonian names all have elements in their names that refer to pagan gods. So if you change their name, you change their diet, you change their education, if you do all of these things, you basically assimilate them, as you said, into your culture. You take away their identity and you give them a new identity. And, and I might know, you notice the educational process as well. Yes, yes, for three years. Three years of education. I'm sorry, Lee. I said it's brainwashing. Yeah, it's called brainwashing. Uh, they probably wouldn't have called that that. They'd probably called them uh, enlightening them in the truth, so to speak. It is. So you know the common question I tend to ask in here, what's that got to do with us? I mean, why is that important to us? Pardon? How so? How's the same thing happening today? Some of the things that's going on in our schools? You are an educator, so you got the right to say that then. I, part of me wants to really put you on the spot and say, give me an example, but I don't think I will, just to let you off the hook. Uh, can you think of any other ways this applies? Yes? Well, we're refining our immigration policy and bringing people that are educated to our country to enhance our culture. Okay, so we're bringing educated people into our country to enhance our culture. And, and, and isn't it interesting that when we do that, we're not the ones indoctrinating them? Seems kind of odd, doesn't it? Someone else? Yes. Media. Yeah, give me an example. <laughs> the look on your face said, I am never raising my hand again. How does that, how does that work? 
Exactly. Exactly. Everything around them would be geared towards something that was not how they were raised. How many of you have said this to your children? That's not how I raised you. Right? And you usually say that after they've been influenced by somebody else or something else. Also, having pastored the great state of Florida, I think it's important to realize that our space program is a direct result of Dr. Werner von Braun and the German technology that came from Germany and how all of us Americans are so proud of NASA and what it's developed. All has its beginning in immigration and of immigrants that came to the United States and brought us that type, kind of technology. So what you're saying then is to, to disseminate another culture into a group of people is a very powerful thing. It has very long-lasting consequences. You know, you conquer a people not just by burning down their city and hauling them off to prison. You conquer them in such a way that they lose their identity and you don't have to run the risk of them rising up and reforming. This is what, I mean, it's really easy to say, well, they hollered off in Babylon and they got to eat the king's food and they were given new names. But it's way more than just this. Way more than just this. All right, let's go on. Verse 8, But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him to not defile himself. In other words, what the king was giving them to eat, although it was royal fare, although that it was top of the line in Babylon, the Hebrews had dietary restrictions that they were to stick to as part of their following of God. And so Daniel, key word, Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself by eating the king's food. So he goes to the, king, uh, the chief of the eunuchs, ask him to allow them not to defile themselves in that way. Verse 9, And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who assigned your food and your drink, for why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. So basically the chief of the eunuchs is saying, you know what, I hear you, I'm empathetic with you, but here's the deal. If you don't eat this food, then you're going you're gonna to get weak and wimpy on me. And, and I, I can't do that. I'm in charge of beefing you up mentally, physically, the whole nine yards. If I don't do that, I've not done my job and I'm in trouble with the king. So I just don't think I can do that. Verse 11, then Daniel said to, now listen to this, then Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, so Daniel goes to somebody else this time, and uh, verse 12, test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat. That would just kill me. I do not like vegetables. I, I, vegetables and I are not friends. That would hurt me. But he said, for 10 days, let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. Now, 10 days, you know, what kind of difference is going to happen in 10 days if you change your diet? You know, 10 to two weeks, that's a week and a half, actually. But this was the deal. And he said, hey, then you... Compare us to the ones that are eating the king's food and then do what you will. Verse 14. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. 
At the end of the 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh. You know, there's a compliment for you. You're fatter in flesh. Really good. Good job. (laughs) Fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine that they were to drink and gave them vegetables. So all this happens in just 10 days, which is there to let you know that this is probably divine intervention also because no change in your diet is probably going to make that much difference in 10 days. So it's a response of God to their faithfulness. Verse 17, as these four youths, as for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. Notice it says God gave them that. Verse 18, at the end of the time when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. This was three years after they started this experiment. Verse 19, and the king spoke with them, and among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king, and in every manner of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and the enchanters that were in his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. He saw the Babylonian rule all the way until it folded and was overcome by the Persians. Uh, so note this what are some things that stand out to you in this chapter Uh, starting from say verse 6 on what are some things that stand out to you because there's a ton of stuff packed in from verse 6 to 21 yes That's a big deal with Daniel. He doesn't just say, he doesn't just get in the guy's face and say, I'm not going to do it. My God says not to do it. I'm not going to do it. You're crazy for that. He doesn't do that. And even when, and and it says that the chief of the eunuchs, uh, God gave him favor in the eyes of the chief of the eunuchs. But even when he denied, Daniel found another way around. In other words, Daniel wasn't insolent or militant about what he did. He worked with people. But he worked with people, and, but he didn't say, let's try this, and then if at the end, I, I'll just go back and do it the way you said. He said, basically, then let our appearance and the appearance of the use who eat the king's food be observed by you, and then listen to this, deal with your servants according to what you see. He basically said, you know, if, if, if you think we still don't look good, we're still not going to do this, but... You can make the call. Daniel had this this great mixture of diplomacy and resolve. He knew what he wanted. He knew what was right. He knew what God had called him to do. But rather than act like a bulldozer, he tried to work with people to get there. I think that's lacking in our country. I think that's lacking among believers. I, I think we're... Too often we're known for what we don't like and what we don't agree with than how we work with people to not just coexist but show them a better way. Because that's what Daniel's doing. Daniel's basically saying, let me show you a better way. Give me 10 days and let me show you a better way. 
So that, I, that's a big deal for me about Daniel. What else did you notice? Remember, these are kids. Now, granted, in Jewish culture, once you turn 12, you're considered a man, so to speak. You have your bar mitzvah and all. But these were kids. We read it like Daniel and his friends are full-grown adults and wise. And, and they are wise, but they're kids. Which really kind of puts the hurt on me because I'm a full-grown adult and I don't know if I show that much resolve. Yes, ma'am. Yes, yes, there's, and, and, and the, the text is not absolutely clear that Daniel was, was absolutely certain that God was going to pull this off. I mean, it doesn't tell us that for sure. We get that impression. There's another place we're going to find in Daniel about his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, where they take a stance of faith, but they're not exactly sure that God's going to honor that one the way they want to either. So you'll find in the book of Daniel that a lot of times they take a stand out of faith, but not necessarily because they know it's going to go good for them. There's, there's this idea that you can have, be resolute in your faith and still some, have some uncertainty as to how it's going to come out. And yet you're still faithful. I like that. Because sometimes we believe that if you're faithful and you have any doubts about whether God's going to do this the way you think he's going to, then you're not really faithful. That's not what we'll see in the book of Daniel. So, anyone else? He's a leader from the beginning. He is. He is a leader from the beginning. He, uh, and, and not a, let me show you how it's done kind of leader. He works with people. He's not a top-down leader. He He's a man of influence. John Maxwell talks about leadership being influence. If you have influence over anyone, you, you're a leader. And to, whether you believe it or not, you have influence over a lot of people. And so Daniel approaches leadership not from let me tell you how to do it, and if you don't listen, you're crazy. It's let me work with you and get us to a better place. And another thing you'll see in this chapter is you see God's hand all over this chapter. You see God giving Daniel favor with the chief of eunuchs. You see God actually changing their physical appearance after just 10 days. You see God basically granting them this, this wisdom and this discernment and this understanding and the ability to, to see and interpret dreams. You, it, scripture tells it very plainly that God is the one that's doing this. This first chapter basically sets up everything that follows in Daniel. Everything that follows in Daniel is just a new circumstance where chapter 1 just keeps taking place over and over again. I'm trying to decide if we have time to get into this one. We'll see. That's his arrival in Babylon. Now let's look at his first, Nebuchadnezzar's first dream. And I, I'm crazy for doing this because I know we won't get through this. Uh, but let's see how far we get. Chapter 2, starting in verse 1. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled, 
and his sleep left him. And then the king commanded that the magicians and enchanters and sorcerers and all the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came and stood before the king. And the king said to them, I had a dream and my spirit was troubled to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream and we will show you the interpretation. Here's where the curveball comes. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The word from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb and your houses be laid in ruins. Yeah, kind of puts you on the spot, doesn't it? But if you show the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. <laughs> they answered him a second time and said, Let the king tell his servants the dream, and we will show you its interpretation. Okay, so now there's a little tug of war going on. They're trying to squirm out of this. The king answered, verse 8, and said, I know with certainty that you are trying to gain time. He, he basically says you're stalling. You know, I know you're trying to gain time. And, and he goes on to say, because you see that the word for me is firm. So verse 9, if you do not make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream and I shall know that you can show me its interpretation. Basically saying, hey, if you're so great, if you can't tell me the dream, then you can't tell me the interpretation. You know, if you're, if you're that hot, if you're that great of magicians and sorcerers, you should be able to tell me the dream. So he, he backs them in the corner. Verse 10, the Chaldeans answered the king and said, this is not a, there is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand. For no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult and no one can show it to the king except the gods, plural, whose dwelling is not with flesh. But of this, the king was angry and very furious and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. So the decree went out, and the wise men were about to be killed. Now the dilemma here is Daniel and his friends fall into that category. So this gets Daniel and his friends lumped in with this death sentence. And they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. And then Daniel replied, listen to this. He's talking about this leadership. Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guards, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He declared to Arioch, the king's captain, why is this decree of the king so urgent? And then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel, and Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. So I, I love the fact that, that Daniel responds prudently and with discretion. You know, he could have marched in and said, you know what, I know I'm on the right side. I know God's going to do what he needs to do. This is no problem. But he responds prudently and with discretion. 
And he goes in and he actually gets the king to give him a stay for a certain period of time so that he can ask God what the dream was. Which tells you what about Daniel's relationship with King Nebuchadnezzar? He respected him because the king was furious enough he wanted them all killed that night. And then Daniel comes in. And, and remember, Daniel's a Hebrew slave. So this Hebrew slave goes into King Nebuchadnezzar and he pulls back a little bit and gives him time. It's a lot of influence. So how did he get that influence? Hmm? God gave it to him. But did God just go, okay, you got it. Everybody's going to kind of do what you want him to do. His reputation. This is, a, this is a situation of God and Daniel walking hand in hand together. That Daniel does what he should do. He walks in the right ways. He's prudent. He has discretion. He's wise. He, he, he doesn't take anything for granted. And God honors that and paves the road for him. You know, if God paves the road for you, but you never walk, it doesn't do you any good. And if you walk and God doesn't pave the road for you, you don't get anywhere. It takes both of these. And so you'll see this all throughout the book of Daniel, this kind of hand-in-hand stepping between the two of them. So, why do you think the writer, and supposedly Daniel is the writer, why do you think he gives us verses 10 through 11. The Chaldeans answered the king, there is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand for no great and powerful king has ever asked such a thing of any magicians, enchanters, or Chaldeans. The thing that the king asks is difficult and no one can show it to the king except the gods who is dwelling, who don't dwell in flesh. Why would the writer, Daniel, let's say, put that in there? Yes. Absolutely. It's a setup. If you ever played volleyball, you know when somebody sets the ball so someone else can spike it. This is a setup. This is so when they say no one on earth can do this, that's exactly right. So now the rest of this story comes in and, and Daniel spikes the ball, basically. And he could, he could take a lot of credit for it, but we're going to find out that he really doesn't. It's, it's a setup. It's a way of setting up the story. Uh, and, and notice that Daniel's first response is not to apply the wisdom he's been given. Let's, let's go back to, let's start in verse 17. I'm not even sure we're going to get through all of this. God reveals Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Notice he's using... Hebrew names, his companions, and he told them, seek mercy from God, from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. And then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. And then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. And Daniel answered and said, 
Blessed be the name of God forever and ever to whom belongs wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise for you have given me the wisdom and the might and have made known to me what we ask of you. For you have made known to us the king's matter. I'll be honest with you. If I had been in Daniel's position and my head was on the chopping block and God just revealed the information I needed to spare my life, I would have been running as fast as I could to the king to share this wisdom I now had. Daniel didn't do that. What did he do? Hmm? He stopped and gave glory to God. First and foremost. Why is that important for us? Why do you think he responded this way? Exactly. God gave him the wisdom that he needed to interpret this dream. To know the dream and to interpret the dream. But I wonder why he didn't just run and use what God had given him. So he wanted to give credit where credit was due. Give God the glory where God deserved the glory. So what does that have to do with us? Again, there's no sense reading this stuff if there's not something there, if God doesn't have something there for us. I mean, I hated history. I don't just read history for fun. Some of you may, and, and I worry about you if you do. But, <laughs> but God puts this in here because it's not just for that time, it's for us. So what does this have to do with us? Hmm? To be an example. Example for us... How? Mm -hmm. So God answers our prayers and directs us and guides us. So what is he trying to tell us? Yes. Well, in, to me what it says is that the whole thing is kind of about in the second verse of the first chapter and it says, and the Lord delivered Jehoiakim king of Judah into the hand along with some of the the Lord did it the Lord gave them over to the people of Babylon and it was all part of God's plan and there's several other passages in here where it says and the Lord caused this to happen and the Lord caused this to happen and so, so, so God did that. this and, and he, he knew it in a way that was just overwhelming to the way that he thought about everything in his life that God was all powerful in his life and in all of his circumstances. Yes. So, so God did this and he knew it and he recognized it. He, he, he vocalized it. Yes.
to give credit to give God credit where credit's due. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, and, and, and he's, he's basically saying it's got to be very humbling if God directly interacts with you in, in such a way as, as to give you the dream and to give you the interpretation. And, uh, and it probably was. I, I mean, that's probably part of why he, he just stopped in his tracks and gave God the credit. But if you stop and think about it, God does stuff like this for us. I mean, maybe not interpreting dreams, but he does all kinds of things for us all the time. And we just mow on. You know? Now, I'm not saying, I, I'm not, I've never been one of those guys. I wasn't raised in church, okay? So I've never been one of those guys that thinks, you know, I've been around people that just praise God for everything. Praise God, he, he opened up a parking space for me, you know? Uh, praise God, I got the last cart, you know? Pra, you know, I'm not one of those guys. If you are, I'm not making fun. I'm just not one of those guys. Uh, but, but you don't have to be one of those people to really stop and recognize what God has done and to give him thanks for it. I mean, even if it's just you giving him thanks. Because, uh, yeah, it might not be a parking spot, but I'll guarantee you, if you'll go back and review your day today, you'll see him. And, and Daniel, the difference between me and Daniel is I see it in hindsight. Daniel saw it in real time. Which is, I think, what we're being called to. That's all hand. Yes. Absolutely. You know, when your kids are teenagers, they ask for very specific things. High dollar specific things, as a matter of fact. Not just a pair of jeans, but a specific pair of jeans. Not just a pair of shoes, but a specific pair of shoes. A specific brand, a specific model. They ask for those things. Because they know if you're going to give them, you should ask for what you want. Right? You know? Don't just ask for shoes. You might get something from Payless. Ask for Nikes. You know? Uh, and I think there's some truth to that. We're, sometimes we're a little generic. Yes? I also think that Daniel realized that he was a, a servant, first of all. But he was a slave. And he understood that his rights and expectations were that of a person who was in servitude to the king and to what the king wanted. I think that parallel draws to us in the New Testament that our attitude also as bond servants of Christ, that we are slaves. We are uh, bought with a price. Uh, Christ has purchased us, and as a result of that, we have, uh, we have kept 
I think our rights and expectations, where Daniel didn't have them, we as slaves, we think we have them. And so we think, well, I have the right and the expectation to do this, this, and this. Where Daniel, he knew he had no rights and expectations. And therefore, his faith was, was full and free to express himself to God and to receive from God the blessings he received. We, on the other hand, because we have rights and expectations, our faith has very little chance to be exercised because we never see it as that vehicle by which God shows himself strong in our lives. So are you saying that if we come to the realization that we don't really have anything and we're not really guaranteed anything, nor do we deserve anything, then everything we get is praiseworthy. I think so. Yeah. yeah. Very succinctly we, we are very much like Daniel in the sense that we are slaves and yet we have access to the king. Yeah. You know, we have access to the king. We, we have the ability to interface with him and talk with him, even though we're slaves, so to speak. Let me leave you one more thing. We've got we to gotta close, but I want you to, to hear this one more time about God. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. I want you to remember that when you go home and watch the news tonight. Okay? Let's pray. Father, I'm grateful for this family of believers. I'm grateful for this word. I'm grateful for the fact that it is not static and dusty and old, but it's actually living and breathing as we know from the New Testament. And it speaks to us. And, and it uplifts us. And it challenges us. And it convicts us. And uh, Father, never let us open your word just as, as head gymnastics. Let us open your word and make it be a part of heart change. And we ask for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.